Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Clam. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 16 of Gatekeeper. As I like to call it, the sweet 16, just like a young gal or man who uh, has just had their 16th birthday. And what happens on that birthday? They get a car. What happens when they get that car? They go a-driving. And on today's episode, that will be the theme. We're taking a drive up the PCH, but this is not the Pacific Coast Highway. This is the uh, personal uh, challenge hour because I'm asking all of the listeners to make a personal challenge over the next hour and see over the course of listening to this podcast if you can achieve that. My suggestion, to listen intently to every word that is said. Picture yourself in all these moments that are being described with me and my guest, Matt Belknap, who has had a phenomenal career that was born out of the organic world of early 2000s comedy. I'm slowly puttering out like a vehicle without gas. Maybe it's because I haven't had much to eat and I rolled out of bed at 11.30 to get here at noon. Got here at 12.02, Matt was already here and just started recording. I think it turned out pretty good, but now I need some sustenance, which is for a human body, the gas. Think about it like this. If a big truck or a car needs you know, X gallons of uh, fuel, a human being needs that as well. So my gatekeeper tip of the week, eat food and drink water because that is nature's gasoline. Now, with no further ado, we're going to do a cool little uh, montage of special effects. And from there, we're going to dive right into Matt Belknap. Gatekeeper. Welcome to Gatekeeper. I'm joined by Matt Belknap. Hey. Hi, Matt. How are you? Good. How's it going? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Have you been up here in the studio before? I've never been here before, what and think? I, I think it's amazing. Hey, uh, thanks. Yeah. I thought I would start with a, a pat on the back of the place I work. It's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> one of the nicer rooms you'll ever uh, see people podcasting in, I would guess. <laughs> and, I mean, we'll start with podcasting. So first and foremost, to, to our listeners... What's what's the Matt Belknap uh, capsulized uh, bullet pointed list of okay accomplishments? What, what do I do? Yeah, what do I do with my days? Yes. Um, I produce Never Not Funny and co-host it with Jimmy Pardo. Um, that I've been we've been doing that ten years, um, and that came out of an interview series I was doing for my website, which is a special thing dot com, mostly defunct as a website, but uh, still um, you know a semi. Is, there's a few people who still uh, go there and converse. It was a uh, message board community for comedy fans. So I was doing an interview series for the website, uh, just talking to different comedians and um, uh, at first just transcribing the interviews. And then I started recording them and podcasting them because it was much easier than transcribing. Uh, and so I interviewed Jimmy and, and at the time I felt like he was doing a live talk show uh, at the UCB. And I thought we could just turn that into a podcast, like just record that live show and put it out once a month. Um, what was the, at that point, I mean, 10 years ago, podcasting yeah. was obviously in, in its infancy. Yeah. What was your relationship with it? 
I, I, I really only became aware of it from um, Jesse Thorne posting on, uh, on my message board about his show, uh, which was then called The Sound of Young America. Now it's called Bullseye. Uh, he was, I think, still in college. Uh, and it was a college radio show that he would, was putting out as a podcast. And I think that's the first time I ever heard the word podcast. Um, and so I was like dimly aware of it that way. And then iTunes, you know, introduced podcasting, the podcast directory in 2005. And, uh, and I was, I checked out Ricky Gervais like everybody else did, um, which I loved. And, and it suddenly just seemed like, oh, this is like a, I could get on the ground floor of this. Like, this is so cool. Like I, I studied film in, in college and, and, uh, or was that Emerson in Boston? And I really wanted to make movies, but you know, when I was studying the history of film, I was always kind of jealous of the people who were there at the beginning. Cause it was like, God, you, you know, there's just so much you could do. You could sort of, you know, plant a flag and, and what the decisions they were making were like that really, you know, maybe the bad ones weren't going to go anywhere, but certain decisions were going to define the, the the medium for for all time. And so, when I saw podcasting, I was like, in the back of my mind, I was like, that'd be cool. I mean, I don't know if this is going anywhere, but it's cool. The idea that you can sort of shape what this is a little bit, or at least be a part of it um, at a very you know early stage. And I, I immediately thought, oh, this is great. This is the answer. Actually, <laughs> directly. Um, relating to your show, I thought it was di- the direct solution to the problem of too many gatekeepers. Right, right. <laughs> you know, like I was like, oh, you don't need you don't need permission. You can just do it. And so that was very exciting to me. And um, and I felt like there were a lot of talented people who weren't getting their shot at that time in comedy. Um, and and this was a way to bypass those gatekeepers and just bring stuff directly to an audience that would appreciate it. So I, um, yeah, so we did, Jimmy thought, oh, he sort of felt like, why don't I also get it on the ground floor of this, if this kid's offering to like help me do this. But he felt like doing the live show once a month. He just wanted to keep that to be its own thing. And he didn't really feel like it was going to translate that well. I think we did record one and he was like, this doesn't really play as well as it does in the room. But he loved sitting down at his dining room table with me when we did the interview for my show. And so he thought, why don't we just do that every week and I'll bring a friend and a comedian and we'll just talk at my dining room table. And that's that, that's how Never Not Funny started. Um, and so, yeah, we've been doing that, uh, well, first once a week, now twice a week for 10 years. And um, and then at ra- around the same time that started, actually, I started um, the record label, um, AST Records, which was an outgrowth of the website and is just a friend of mine. And I, again, just feeling like these comedians are not getting the um, exposure that they deserve. Let's help them put stuff on CD. It's relatively simple and inexpensive to produce that stuff. And and we have the equipment or we can get the equipment. I think at that time I, we got the equipment. Some of it I was, I was cobbling together for podcast purposes and some of it we bought for recording live shows for the, la- the label. But, you know, you know, it's like 500 bucks to <laughs> have right. a decent setup. So, uh, yeah, we, we started that and, and, um, and the idea there was to just, uh, you know, help our friends make albums and, and we'd gotten to know people like Jen Kirkman and Paul of Tompkins and, um, uh, a bunch of other people. And so that was really just, um, we didn't think it would be like a, a living. We just thought it would be a fun thing to do. And Ryan had another job. I had, a, I had a job too. My day job was reading scripts. Um, for, is, is it a living? Uh, yeah. re- this is now, yeah, the label is, is a small living for me because I, I only work part time on it because I have a lot of other stuff going on. So I have like three jobs and that's one of them. And then Never Not Funny is one of them. And then 
Um, I also launched a, a podcast hosting company called Art19, which is uh, yet another job that I'm, I find myself doing. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, it, it got to a point where Ryan could quit his day job and, and he works full time and he's sort of like the boss. That's amazing. I mean, that's yeah. become a theme, I think, in a lot of these conversations is and just art in general, obviously, is uh, you start doing something you love doing. Yeah. And then that organically grows. And I think about especially you. It's crazy. It's been a decade because I moved to LA at the end of 2005, mm-hmm. and I think I mean, we must have met around that time. Right. Yeah. Right I'm after trying to even think opened. about. Yeah, it was UCB. Yeah. Um, I, I don't even remember exactly how or when we met, but yeah, I'm guessing it must have been either UCB or some other show. Yeah. But just thinking about that time in 2005 to six in LA, mm-hmm. and you know, UCB opening was obviously a huge, um, you know, melting pot of everyone coming together. Yep. Um, but also a special thing. What What year did that start? It started in 2001. Really? That's uh, incredible. But it was uh, initially, the name comes from uh, Tenacious D lyric, and it was initially just a Tenacious D fan site. Um, it was just like a place to discuss all things Tenacious D. And then, you know, they Jack Black became a movie star, and, and the band was less central to, um, you know, they were not that active. So naturally, the people who were fans of theirs were also fans of Mr. Show. And, and so there was like a a sub forum that was just talking about other comedy that wasn't tenacious D and it was called Mr. Show and other comedy. You probably remember. And so it really, that became like the home base for anybody who wanted to talk about alternative comedy. Uh, really, I guess on the internet, cause there weren't a lot of places. No, where that it was, was happening. such a hub. And I was still in San Francisco at the time, but that became the place to yeah. more than, I mean, I posted a little bit on that site, but more mm-hmm. than just, cause it wasn't just uh, fans. It was, you know, it was creators. Yeah. Comedians that that's sort of, that was the turning point. And I think the, the most exciting and, and, uh, active the site ever was, was there was a time when, um, Patton Oswalt and Chris Hardwick and Jimmy and Doug Benson and, um, Jen Louis, and everyone, Louis CK. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There were people, they would just be posting cause they were fans of comedy too, or they just, they liked talking about comedy. And a lot of those guys like Louie and, and, uh, and Patton would like start their, or they would, respond to they would have their own q a thread basically where anybody could ask them a question there and it was it was small enough that it didn't feel crazy and out of control and like unmanageable because it was really like you kind of had to look for it it wasn't like on the front page of the internet Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was like in a in the back corner um so it sort of had a self-filtering mechanism built into it where if you found that you were probably cool enough to like not spaz out on like yeah, the, the the comedians who were there or it was just not a huge number of people because at that time also like Louis wasn't famous and Patton was a little bit famous and um, mostly they were only famous to the you know few dozen people who were there like geeking out over the fact that they were there but for us for the fans it was really exciting well it's, it's such a precursor to where you know where comedy is at now where you know comedy nerds are so interactive through podcasting yeah. So it is it's interesting to me that um, you were, I think, a formative part of building that community and even having um, that message board as the first place where, you know, uh, podcasts were actively being promoted. Yeah, yeah. It was a place where people who were making podcasts could go and, and at least comedy podcasts could go and, and like find an audience, not a big one, because it wasn't it was never huge. Like there was never a huge number of people there. But I think that's honestly part of why it was good. Like you've seen with reddit and and to a lesser extent any social media or social network you, you um you get too many people and it gets out of control and and you lose that whatever that is where you actually feel like there's people know each other and there's a sense of like self regulation uh you know because everyone's 
you know, I mean, we had trolls and we had stuff, but like it was kind of handled by the community or within, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like it was it was just like a nice um, atmosphere. Um, Again, because the common thread was people, anybody who I mean, my feeling always was if anybody who can appreciate this kind of comedy isn't they can't be too bad you know like i if if they're here that means they appreciate this the same stuff i appreciate and so we can talk and we can get along and it's not going to be uh it's not gonna be a nightmare uh even though that there were times when people just came in only to cause trouble which always happens but yeah i i think that's uh the 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 struggle or i don't it wasn't even a struggle because i didn't really have any ambition for that site beyond what it was but um i realized at some point this isn't going to be like this isn't a million dollar idea. Like this isn't going to be this big thing because you can't scale it. You know, you can't scale that magic of, of uh, a few like-minded people uh, getting to know each other in this, uh, you know, virtual space and, and, and talking really only talking about the things that they care about and not like, and having that be uh, a safe place basically. Uh, Even like the the show recaps is something I remember, um, Mm -hmm. you know, people across the country just being like, Here's a recap of the show last night, and it's, it's exposed me to a lot of you know comedy I didn't know. Like yeah, and you had the show uh, following uh, Death Ray yes. at UCB. What was it called again? It was called See You Next Tuesday. Oh, of course, See You Next Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, Which, that might be how we met. Actually, I bet it was. Yeah, um, you might have. I mean, talk about gatekeeping. You might have. You might have asked me for a spot on that, I'm and that sure might be how we, how we had a meeting. <laughs> um, I was trying to remember if I had ever booked you on that. I couldn't remember, but um, but yeah, that was my first like probably a official comedy gatekeeper role, I think. Um, and Scott Ackerman, uh, basically just asked if I wanted to do, we, we got to know each other at M bar when in death ray was starting out and, and he was also active on the website and, um, he recognized that I was a fan of comedy and then was passionate about it and just he wanted to have a show that followed death ray. That was more, a little more experimental or a little more, um, up and comer, right. not as established because death ray really was at a, at that point, a, an institution where, you know, you would see some new people. He tried, he was good at, and, you know, trying to get new people in all the time. But the, but the reason why it was such a popular show is people knew that they were going to see Sarah Silverman or they were going to see Patton or Louie or Paul F or whoever. And, um, it was a guaranteed great show. So he wanted sort of some, the, the late show after that to be, um, sort of the test ground, you know, and maybe he could find some new people that way and he just needed somebody to book it and run it. And so he asked me to do it and I was thrilled. I, I, it was, I was basically the whole time I was running the site, I just was trying to, I just wanted to be involved in the scene cause I was so enamored of it and, and I wasn't a comedian. So I just sort of felt like, well, running this site, maybe that's my role. Like is just running the site. But did you ever have aspirations to perform or, uh, at one point around, um, 2004 I started doing open mics because I had been so deeply entrenched in the the world of it without ever doing it that I kind of felt like I should try it so I know what I'm talking about like if I'm gonna be writing about it because I was writing about comedy a lot on the site at that time and I felt like I should do it myself and not be that asshole who writes about it as if he knows everything without actually ever having experienced it so I did open mics for like six months on and off like never I mean, you know how it, especially at that time, actually LA is probably different now, but back then it was hard to do two shows in a night. Like you really had to work to like find two shows, two open mics in one night in LA. It was, it was not like New York or many of like other places where there's just shows everywhere. So I, you know, when I say six months, I was probably doing one or two shows a week for six months or something like that. Um, 
and doing doing as much as I could, but also at the same time not really being I, I just didn't have a passion for it. I didn't like um I didn't feel strongly like I wasn't like, ooh, that was really rough. That just destroyed me. Or I was I was 30. I turned 30 that year. And um so I was too old to be like, this is everything. This is gonna be my whole life. Right. And I was also like you know, when it was good, like when I did well, I didn't really care. It didn't mean anything to me because it was like, oh, there's like, you know, 13 people here. Who cares if I did well? Um, and if I did poorly, again, it also didn't mean anything because it's like, well, yeah, there's 13 people. <laughs> like, what's that mean? Like, maybe it was me. Maybe it wasn't. But I didn't didn't really I didn't feel like I was getting anything out of it mostly. So it was more of an experiment to sort of say that I did it. And and I can I mean, it, it's still a far cry for, you know, like talking to um, professional comedians there's so many levels beyond that where you have experiences that shape you and, and um, change how you view things, you know, mostly for a lot of people just doing the road and having to make a living and having to get from one city to another city on, on a hundred dollars because for, you know, that's all you got that week. And so there's all that stuff that I can't, you know, obviously can't really um, speak to that experience, but at least I know what it feels like to be on a stage and try to do some jokes that you wrote down and, and, um, and I was, I mean, I was always trying to be a screenwriter too. So like, I felt like this is a good exercise for my writing, like to sort of work this different muscle uh, as a writer. I mean, at that point in your career, I was screenwriting, you know, without knowing that, you know, the records and mm-hmm. everything was going to take off the way it has. What did you want to do at 30 years old? I, I came here to be a screenwriter and when I was right out of college at 21. And, um, and my intention was to, you know, do that. But it was at that point I was eight years in and, um, uh, that wasn't looking so good. <laughs> it just didn't, nothing was happening and I was getting frustrated and it, I was not a uh, prolific. So I wasn't like churning out multiple like script. I was writing maybe one script a year and it just felt really pointless. And, um, and like I was never going to get, I mean, I, I tried to convince myself that I was good or that I was getting better and that is, I just needed, you know, I needed to have some luck or something, but mostly, uh, I think looking back, it was like this, I I didn't, I mean, I just think, I think uh, honestly writing in Hollywood is a, is a sales job. It's not a, it's not really, the writing is almost irrelevant to your success. You have to be a great salesman and what you're selling is you, you're selling your own personality and it's not, um, uh, and that's, I was a total introvert. I was really uncomfortable. I didn't want to leave my apartment. I just wanted to sit in a room and write and have my work speak for itself, which is a very naive and immature way to approach it, <laughs> uh, as you know. And, and so, you know, it took a long time for me to, to come to terms with the fact that I wasn't doing it the right way. I had connections, you know, in the world just from being a reader, but it didn't really matter because I was just like, this is the guy like they, they already, all those people already had a, a perception of who I was. And it was like, I was, I was really good at my job, which was reading scripts and breaking them down and saying what was wrong with them. Well, you, you mentioned that before the, we started talking about it. Yeah. You're working for Ron Howard's company. Yeah. I was working for imagine entertainment. Um, and, uh, I, I, I kind of reached a point with them where, um, you know, you, you how do you get that job by the way? Uh, well, I, I, when I got out of college, I got an internship at a smaller production company called the, the Samuel Goldwyn Company, which was, actually was the last true independent um, uh, company in, in Hollywood at the time. I mean, it was like basically Miramax had gotten bought by Disney and all these other companies that were out there had been purchased by studios. So they were like the last one standing. They were like making 
like doing acquisition at festivals, but also, um, you know, raising financing and producing their own movies, uh, as much as they could. So I, I interned there for a summer. And then, uh, when I was done with my internship, they offered me the reading job and, uh, and then I did that for a year. And then somebody at Imagine who had worked at Samuel Goldwyn before that, they were looking for more for a reader and, and they asked uh, if I wanted to come in. And so I basically just went there and I stayed there for like 12 or 13 years. It was like, that was my day job. That was how I paid my bills. And it was very comfortable because I could do it from home. And I, the theory was that I could work on my own writing during the day. And then I would, they, they usually the way it would work is like, they would call me at the end of the day. We got a script for you. Back then there was no PDF, no email. I mean, there was email, but they couldn't send you a script like that. So I would drive to the office, mm-hmm. pick up the script, have, you know, seven minutes of FaceTime with people in the office, <laughs> drive home, read it that night, wake up in the morning, write it up. And coverage, just for people who don't know, is basically the first line of defense in a production company or an agency or any, anyone involved in movies where they get tons of submissions and they just need people. They need somebody to like separate the, <laughs> the wheat from the, sh- the chaff. And, uh, and so that was my job. Like I would basically, they're just looking for someone to say, look, we know that 90% of this stuff is going to be garbage. Can you just weed out the 90% and give us the 10%? And so I would read it. And then what it looked like is like, you would write a, a, a cover page that was like a one paragraph synopsis of the movie. And then you would write a longer, more detailed synopsis, which was usually like five pages. Um, and then you would write one page of comments, which where you would say, here, and that was usually three paragraphs. And it was usually like, here's the headline on this is interesting idea, poorly executed or whatever. And then you'd write like one paragraph about the good stuff, one paragraph about the bad stuff, and then pa- pass, consider, strong consider, or recommend, which in 13 years probably happened three times that I recommended something straight up. Did anything uh, ever get made? Yeah, yeah. So eventually um, I, I, I did that long enough where they started asking me to... Um, to work on scripts that they were developing. And that's a slightly different job, which is they've hired somebody, they've bought a script and they're paying the writer to rewrite it. And they need somebody to read every draft and keep track of the changes. So there would be a synopsis that was continually updated and then a beat sheet, which is just a, a line of, of every scene and that you have to keep updating that. And then comments about, you know, whether it's going in the right direction or you know how it can be more uh, further improved. And so for a while I was working um, on, you know, submissions, but also on a bunch of projects that were, you know, uh, in the machine, like they were, they were on their way. So I worked on, um, a beautiful mind. I worked on eight mile. I worked on, um, the Grinch, uh, the Jim Carrey Grinch movie. Um, got a lot, I mean, tons, tons is just whatever, basically, uh, half of the stuff that imagine made from 99 to 2009 or 2010, probably I, I, was looking at it at some point or another. Oh, um, the Da Vinci Code, sure, um, and the sequel um, to that. So basically, a lot of most of Ron Howard's movies, the ones he directed, and then a bunch of other stuff that they were producing that um, he wasn't directing. But um, but yeah, that was. I mean, it was a super interesting job. I actually really uh, I liked it, parts of it. Um, but the main thing that it did in my life was that it squeezed my passion for making movies out of me. <laughs> it basically just like it, it, it was so crushing to see how the process actually worked that as a writer, I mean, pra- on, pra- on a practical level, it also like was so hard. You know, this from, I was just listening to the Brent Forrester episode uh, of your show and, and he talks about how you have to turn, you know, when you do like a vomit draft, you have to turn off your critical brain and just like go, and when your job is to be 100% critical of writing, 
turning like to do that in the morning, first thing in the morning is that's like the first thing you do when you wake up. I literally would roll out of bed and sit down and write before I write coverage before I was even dressed. And, uh, and then, um, and then to try to switch that off and be creative was really hard. Well, basically it was impossible. I mean, I, I did it, but I didn't do it well. Like the, mm-hmm. st- the, the stuff I was writing in that period was not good. Probably partly at least because I, had such trouble switching that off. I know that all too well. It's, it's, um, you know, when you're a creative person and you work so close to what you want to be doing ultimately, mm-hmm. um, you know, it seems so creative at times, but I just, what you just said, I relate to mm-hmm. on so many levels right now, especially booking a comedy club. Yeah. It, well, that's, yeah, it's tough when you're on both sides of it. Um, you know, you, you, you sort of have to be, um, you know, you, you sort of have to, figure out a way if, if you can do that to by jump back and forth between your different <laughs> lives and different personas, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was no oversight either. You know, when you're writing, it's a very solitary effort. So there's nobody, you know, cracking the whip and keep making sure that you're hitting some deadline. So it was very easy to, to procrastinate. Honestly, that's what a special thing was a, was a, a procrastination. Mm-hmm. It started, um, into in, in 2000, it was a 99 or 2000. I, I had written a, a feature script and, and I had no ability to get it out there. I didn't have an agent and I just showed it to whoever I, who would, who would look at it and it didn't go anywhere. And a friend of mine who was an actor said, why don't we make this ourselves? And this was right around when like, you know, digital video, like, uh, um, a mini DV as a format was sort of coming around and, and people were doing that. Like movies were starting to be made that way. Um, even though they didn't look very good, it was still like, Oh, you don't have to have, uh, you know, millions of dollars. So I was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. Let's get a camera and we'll get, um, our friends together, some actors and some people to be crew. So we shot this movie and, um, and it was kind of a crushing, uh, disappointment for me because as soon as we started making it, I realized it wasn't going to be my, it wasn't going to be citizen Kane basically, which is like <laughs> in my 25 year old brain. I was like, this is going to be, this is my time. Like, here we go. This is gonna be clerks. This is going to be whatever. And I mean, I just realized the day one, I was like, this is not going to come out the way I want it to come out. Like we're shooting on video. It's never going to look professional. It's never going to look like a real movie. It doesn't matter how good the performances or the writing, you know, any of that doesn't matter because it's just going to look amateur. So I was just like, it was a grind to finish shooting it. it took a few months but, and it was, it was brutal. Every day I felt like I was failing. I would wake up again. I also still had this reading job. So I was like waking up at four in the morning to drive down to South central. We were shooting, it was a college. It was set in college. So we were shooting, it was summer. We were shooting in a frat house on the USC campus that was doubling as a dorm for us. And so I I had to like get there at like five to shoot for three hours and then go home and do my job. And everybody else had jobs, you know? So like they all had their day jobs. And so we were trying to shoot at ridiculous times. And so fatigue and failure and the stress of just, you know, right. You know, just uh, garden variety stress of, of life were all like sort of weighing me down. And so when it was done shooting, I just, no, I didn't want to look at it. I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to deal with it. And we, we had an editor lined up and he bailed. And so it was just kind of sitting on a shelf and I knew deep down, I was like, no one's going to be able to edit this. I have to edit it. Like I, the only person who can edit it is me because it's, it's garbage. And I don't want to put that on anybody else. (laughs) Like, I don't want to make anybody else clean up my mess. I have to do it myself, but I didn't want to confront it. So I started the website, um, because I was like just procrastinating. I was looking for anything else to do. Um, by the way, the movie that you made, yeah. Mad Max Fury Road. (laughs) 
<laughs> Turned out to be yeah, pretty good. I know. It was weird. You, you would think that I would have more confidence in it with such a great cast. But yeah. I just was like, it just didn't feel right. Like, no, I didn't feel like anyone was ready to see that kind of feminist manifesto on the big screen. It's insane that that's a mini DV. I know. You wouldn't think it. It looks, well, look, they did a great job in post. I I have to give the, you know, those guys credit. Um, But yeah. Uh, Yeah, that movie is never going to see the light of day. And um, hopefully it'll just be, there's like a couple of people who've seen it that uh, they were very nice about about watching it and, and not being <laughs> too mean or too critical of it, but it's in the past, but basically for the year that I was avoiding it uh, as a, as a post-production editing project, I got really into tenacious D and I got really into just comedy because I was just looking for anything to distract me. And um, that's why I started the site. And so that just led me down this path of like finding this world. And I think in a weird way, I was just kind of like, Oh, this is maybe where I belong. Like I don't, I didn't feel like I belonged in the world of, all the people that you meet when you move to LA mm-hmm. and you're trying to make movies, you're trying to write. I just didn't like anybody. I didn't like those people. <laughs> like, I, get it. I didn't want to be one of them. Yeah. You know, like I just felt like they were uh, really phony and, and it was every, it was every cliche that people told me that I didn't want to believe when I was in college. It was like, Oh, it's just like Hollywood's the worst. It's, you know, it's going to chew you up and spit you out. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to be the one who proves that wrong. And, and it was just, I think what I ultimately ultimately realized was it wasn't about, you know, it wasn't about like learning the game and beating it. It was just like, do I even like playing this game? Like this isn't fun. I didn't, didn't seem fun. Um, so I found something that was fun for me and, um, and just dove into that. And, and then because uh, I have this sort of issue where I just, I feel guilty when I'm wasting my time. Like when I'm, when I'm, when I'm procrastinating, I always feel guilty about the fact that I'm not doing something more productive so I always felt like I have to make something of this. This was a huge waste of time, like mm-hmm. starting that website and spending hours every day writing on it. And, you know, I was just like if this amounts to nothing, then I'm not going to be able to, like, look myself in the mirror because it's ridiculous how much time I've put into it. Um, but it good news. And so it did. Yeah. I mean, I think I sort of had to find a way to make it be something that led to something that led to something that actually led to a career. So that's, but it, I mean, it's, it was, it's community building at its very core mm-hmm. and I'm sure relationships you've made on there are still flourishing. And yeah, I mean, those were, I mean, basically I got to know people or people got to know me, I should say uh, it was sort of like a weird trick that I realized if I'm introverted and uncomfortable in social situations. Um, but if, if I do this in a safe for me, what was a safe place because I didn't have to look anybody in the eye or avoid eye contact because I'm uncomfortable with it, then I could at least, I could, I could let people know me through my writing. And mm-hmm. I kind of felt good to be writing and have people reading what I was writing. Cause you know, being a writer, a lot of what you do, if you're trying to make it as a screenwriter is sit, sitting alone for months, writing something that no one sees. And then eventually maybe a few people see it, but there's, there's no feedback you know, and so I was starving for feedback, I think, as a, as a writer. And so being able to post something on the Internet and immediately get feedback from people, and it didn't even matter who it was, just the fact that I could write something and then people would react to it immediately was like really um, empowering and, and exciting for me. Um, I was like, OK, this is what I need. Like the, I actually do need some sort of um, I mean, I, I guess not even validation, but just uh, to not feel like I'm shouting into the void, you know, mm-hmm. so that that's what it was was doing and and so the community i mean i didn't think this would happen or expect it to happen but when comedians started reading the site they got to know me through that and some of them 
despised me because they were like, who the fuck is this guy? But a lot of them were like, hey, this is cool that this guy is actually cares enough to write about what we're doing. And, and it made them feel better that they because they some of them were in a place in their careers where they were like, I'm not getting anywhere. Like to me, it was like they were up on a pedestal. I was like, oh, my God, these guys are yeah. the gods of comedy. But in, for them, it was like, hey, I got two lines on Becker and now I'm <laughs> back to, you know, back to doing one nighters or I'm back to doing, you know, road gigs to make a living. And uh, so I think it was nice for them to feel like, oh, here's a guy who gets it and he's passionate enough to like put it, put his his uh, excitement for what I'm doing into words in a way that other people who didn't see me can actually at least know what's going I think on. I mean, it's just such an important Part in the evolution of you know the, the idea of the comedy nerd, it really <laughs> is. I mean, it, I remember yeah. the first time I went to that site, being like, "Oh my god, people are as obsessed with Mister Show." Yeah, and well, so it's, it's kind of what I feel like that's happened. I keep seeing more and more examples of this happening in in culture where um, social uh, networks and and social media have allowed people who. 20 years ago, never would have known a, another person on the planet who had shared the same thing mm-hmm. as them. Like I was just watching, I don't know if you saw the thing going around yesterday about the guy who wants to live his life as a puppy. Didn't see that one. Yeah. Um, he's in, he lives in England and someone made a documentary about, but it's not just him. There's like a whole scene. And of course there's a scene cause now everything <laughs> has a scene, but like, like I said, 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been a scene that would have been uh, a guy, a thing that this guy was embarrassed to admit in right. public, but now he knows other people who agree with him. It's kind of an offshoot of furries, I guess, but basically it's just like, there's so many things like that. ASMR. I don't know if you know about ASMR, but that's like a whole community of people who, uh, who feel tingling sensations in their scalp when they hear soft spoken uh, words or things like that. Whoa, and, whoa. This is, <laughs> you don't know about this. This is what I've needed to hear. Yeah. I am ASMR. You know about that? No, I'm just kidding. Oh. Um. <laughs> no, a lot of people have it and don't really know that it has a name, but it's like it, a lot of people, um, t- like Bob Ross, you know, remember the painter Bob sure. Ross? A lot of people feel like when they're growing up, that was like their first experience of like hearing someone talking softly and explaining how to do something would make their head tingle. And that was something no one ever put a name to or even thought twice about because it's just like, oh, that's just a weird thing. It's like doesn't even rise to the level of acknowledging out loud but then as soon as the internet and you know youtube came along it was like oh now we can find other people that like that and now we can actually make videos for those people now there's people who are making money making videos for people who have this sensation and so i was like i just feel like that's happening more and more and i kind of just feel like you kind of just find what your thing is and you know in that uh context and and you'll you'll find other people who are on the same page as you um luckily in comedy there were a few uh things that had been created like mr show was a real magnet i think um for people who were like that's what i want that's what i that's what i aspire to create myself or that's what i consider to be the pinnacle mm-hmm. like cuz it was it was so um, it was just like light years ahead in terms of its like uh, construction and that, that was the show for me i mean I always was obsessed with comedy as a kid yeah. and growing up, but when I watched that, and I watched it after it was on HBO, like in, yeah. in like 2000, 2001, mm-hmm. I watched that show and was like, that's what I want to do. I want to yeah. make that. Whatever that is, I want to make that. Yeah, there's something about it that was simultaneously, it worked perfectly as sketch comedy, but it also had an element of look at what we're doing, like look what you can do that was inspiring to so many people, I think, you know, because it was like, oh, right, like, it's uh 
there's there are people behind this creating it. I, I think at the time I was like, I don't understand how they do it. Like I wanted it, what it did for me was it made me want to figure out how they wrote it because I was I just was so blown away by the writing. And I was like, how do you get there? Like, it just seemed so, uh, so smart. And, and, um, and then, so like, I, in my mind, I think like I set, kind of set that as a goal to like, let me, f- I want to like, see if I can figure out how they got there. Um, and I think the answer, as I realized eventually was like, it's a combination of like, you have to have a certain life experience level. Like you have to live enough to accumulate the references that they were working with. Like you, that that's like in your backpack, you know, like you have a backpack of, things you've seen and experienced and the bigger, you know, that is the more you can draw on it. And then also a real, uh, you know, a healthy skepticism and, and like a real keen eye for like, you know, uh, just how the world is and trends that happen. I mean, I think that's what was always so impressive to me is like they would put their finger on something that everyone was sort of noticed, but they would do it in a way that wasn't like, I mean, you can watch it now and still get it, even though something was obviously, in the moment, in the time it was made, that was absolutely about this guy. It was about Billy Blanks or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it was about some specific pop culture trend or thing that was just happening at that moment. Um, but it, they made it universal, and they made everybody. You know, it, it just—I don't know. It was just like brilliant. Like, it, it was such a departure to me from like the shows that were just kind of like like SNL, which I loved, which was just like taking whatever the thing everybody was talking about and then just like recreating it. And it was like, isn't it funny that this person can do an impression of that person? I'm like, it's funny, but it's a lot funnier if you use that as a vehicle to comment on what this means or like Mm -hmm. what, or or something else completely, you know, you you can use that as a conduit to, to actually say something. And that's what really impressed me and, and made me want to, to like, dig deeper and, 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 you know, deconstruct it, which is what, you know, mostly what was happening on the website for most of those years was just people endlessly deconstructing and trying to, you know, figure uh, reverse engineer how mm-hmm. all this great comedy was made. I love it. So, I mean, let's talk about never not funny for a minute. Mm-hmm. I mean, 10 years, would, would you even expect for a second that it would last <laughs> a decade? No, no. I, at the time it was mostly just like, this is so much fun. Uh, I think, you know, we probably, Jimmy and I probably both felt like we're just going to do this until someone tells us to stop because it's fun and it doesn't feel like work. It just feels like, you know, as long as we can find the time to do it and we will make the time because it's, it's something that we care about. Um, and that was the first main podcast that I listened to for sure. Mm-hmm. When I still lived in the Bay Area, I remember listening to it on BART and um, it, it exposed me to, you know, comics just like the message board or anything else. Mm-hmm. I never had heard before. Obviously, Jimmy is one of the funniest humans mm-hmm. ever to exist. <laughs> yeah. How do you keep a podcast fresh after for ten years? Like, um, I think what we do is uh, we we just don't um, we try not to we try to you know evolve with whatever we feel like is fun. I mean, like the really the only. Um, the only mandate on the show is that we have a good, that we entertain ourselves basically. I mean, that was always what we were trying to do is like, we just felt like, and I don't even know if we said this out loud, but the clearly the goal was like, if we can make each other laugh, if we can have make this, if this is going to be fun for us, then other people will enjoy it too. And like, it was uh, originally, I think the conceit basically it was just like, here's a, yeah, you can be a fly on the wall of a green room at a comedy mm-hmm. club. And like, and what I always felt was, one of the things, one of the great joys of, of getting involved in the, in the comedy world was discovering that 
not across the board, but a lot of comedians are just as funny, sometimes even funnier when they're not on stage and just hearing comedians, um, you know, try to make each other laugh is like one of the greatest things. I think honestly that explains in a nutshell why comedy podcasting has blossomed is because it's, it's as good or better than prepared material Mm -hmm. when people are good at it and they understand the game of it and they, and they really relish in it. And that's what Jimmy is the consummate always on type guy. Who's just funny in his bones. Like he, he doesn't put, I mean, like he's talked about this a lot in interviews, but he had to learn to stop trying to be a comedian, to be a good comedian because when he was doing open mics, he was just himself and it worked. And then he, when he got paid, he was like, Oh, now I have to, put on a sport coat and and write jokes and perform them and he sucked and it took them it took him years to figure out because his friends kept telling him just stop it just just do what you used to do just do just be you and it took him years to figure out how to be himself on stage and just be the, his truest the truest version of himself but what is great is that he can he's that's who he is wherever he goes so if you just put a microphone in front of him and put him in a conversation with another person like a todd glass for example who just loves he loves bantering and he loves riffing. And, um, I mean, to me, that is like the greatest. And, and so to answer your question in a long way, <laughs> like what we do to keep it fresh is like, you know, we try to find new people who, who are of like, uh, the, of like, you know, like-minded individuals, you know, there's comedians who are very written and very cerebral and don't really enjoy that. And we've had some of them on the show and sometimes it, it, it can work out fine. Actually, it, sometimes it's good, but generally um, we look for people who actually enjoy that, that, um, that riffing and, and, and just being silly and making people laugh in, in conversation. And so we're always looking for new people sometimes. I mean, just in the last year or so, I think what we've done is we've, we've dropped the guest thing on, you know, pretty much once a month or even more, maybe twice a month now we'll do shows without guests. And cause we have like our intern and our video producer have become characters on the show. Um, sort of against their will maybe but they're sort of now a part of it and so we can just like sit down and do a show and it's just the banter amongst the four of us is is a show and then we'll take phone calls with from fans and then they become you know as you know jimmy's really a a sort of a master uh, crowd work guy and so taking phone calls is kind of like just doing crowd work for him but over a a phone line so we do that we you know i think it just like it's just a matter of shifting uh, not getting caught in a rut. I mean, I'm somebody who never likes to say the same thing twice, uh, you know, comedically. I just, uh, on the show, I don't like to repeat myself. And, um, you know, Jimmy has bits that he develops and, and, and works up to a point that he can use them as a loose structure for what he does on stage. So he'll go back to certain jokes, but we have running bits and then they expire and then we move on. We, we find something else. And so, I mean, it's just like, it just kind of, the whole thing is just, I think, as organic as we can make it. We don't want it to be um, to feel like we planned it because we never have any pre-show anything. It's just like, let's just talk and try to find the funny. Yeah, I mean, talk about in 10 years. I mean, when he started the podcast, uh, I'm sure he was just like, let's get a couple of mics and a mixer. Like, mm-hmm. um, how has that evolved um, production-wise? <laughs> a lot. Oh, yeah, I mean, over over the years, like we've, upgraded our equipment a few times and we have our own studio now and um we went from his dining room to borrowing a friend's um she's a screenwriting instructor and she had like a a back room where she would teach classes but when there weren't classes she was like you guys can record in there 
in exchange for me producing her podcast, which is actually a great screenwriting podcast. If you're a screenwriter, check out on the page, which on is the page. very helpful um, for budding writers and a lot of great interviews with great uh, um, established writers. But yeah, so we were in there for a while and then we struck out on our own and just found our own space that, that you know, worked for us. And so and partly that was because we do video and, and as you know, video is like exponentially more complicated than just recording audio. And so we needed, we felt like we needed a place where we could leave everything set up and not have an hour of setup and breakdown mm-hmm. every day. So, um, so we just sort of built a room to our own specifications and, um, but yeah, I mean, it seems like he's also evolved, like, you know, the business model around it has mm-hmm. been changing too for 10 years and, yeah. um, and then I guess, I mean, that's a good uh, entry point to uh, Art19. Mm-hmm. Sell us. <laughs> what is it? Art19, I mean, Art19 was originally just me uh, bitching to my friend Sean about how there's no infrastructure in podcasting. This was back in 2011, but um, there's really no infrastructure for effectively monetizing podcasts. Like uh, advertising and podcasting was like in its infancy back then. And um, I was, you know, Never Not Funny did a premium uh, uh, format for years where you could listen to 20 minutes of the show for free and then you would have to buy a, a subscription to, to get the whole show. And there was just the technology for selling that and doing that the right way. It wasn't there. So we sort of had to custom build it ourselves or hire someone to build it for us. And I just always felt like it, it could be so much better. Like we could, we could lower the barrier to entry on a technical front uh, a lot if, if we just did this a little more professionally or at a larger scale and i think other shows could benefit from it this was around time when like you know marin and and company bang bang and <clears throat> they just were popping up and i just felt like okay well if this is happening then these people are going to need a better way to do this if they actually want to make money doing it and so that was the so my friend sean who has a background in um in computer science and and was looking for a, a new career path uh, said, well, maybe we can build that. And so we took, you know, we did a lot of rounds of fundraising and false starts and pitching to millions of people and getting a lot of doors slammed in our face. And, and, but five years later, we are finally launching. We're, we're, we've been in beta for about six months. This show actually is hosted on R19, yeah, no, it's- um, which is awesome. Uh, Sideshow, all of Sideshow Network is, is hosted on R19. And, uh, and yeah, we we we're sort of uh, going to announce our official launch uh, pretty soon. I don't know when this episode goes up, but probably in in June. Um, so yeah, it's it's been great. The, the the key thing really that we found was lacking because there were companies in the five years we, it took us to get this going. Companies sprung up to handle ad sales, and networks sprung up to handle like um, you know marketing and and helping you know get more audience so people were addressing a lot of the concerns that i saw that that needed to be addressed in podcasting but the technology was still sort of lagging and so we just decided let's focus solely on on technology and and do the stuff that you know that i as a podcaster wanted uh, uh the tools that i felt i needed and no one else was providing and a lot of that has to do with um i mean it's just a better hosting experience on one level but it, uh, but it's also um, specifically about dynamic ad insertion, which is this kind of concept that's been kicking around for a while. It's, it's not, it's kind of new to podcasting, but it's, it's basically like when, if you think about Spotify or Pandora, the way the ads run on there, because they're streaming, mm-hmm. you never hear, you're, you're hearing ads, no matter what you're listening to, you're hearing fresh ads. Um, and in podcasting, that wasn't the case for years. You would be hearing an ad that was baked into that episode when it was recorded. And so what that means is that you're wasting inventory. Like if you have a hundred episodes and you can't put a new ad in the old episodes, then that's just inventory that's going to waste. So 
<clears throat> we built a, a tool that could dynamically insert and remove ads from podcasts. And so people can sell against their entire catalogs instead of against one episode. And, uh, that's, um, you know, that's one facet of what we're doing. I think, you know, there's a lot of other things that will benefit people in the long run, but, uh, but we're getting a lot of traction just simply because everybody in the space now realizes that's important and is going to help make more money for podcasters, but also for the ad sales teams and for networks, everybody in the chain can benefit from that. Buyers, you know, people who are in the brands who want to advertise on shows can get more audience um, that way and, and reach more people. And there's just a lot of stuff, you know, uh, as you probably know, in podcasting, small shows have a hard time monetizing because, you know, you need a certain volume to attract uh, advertisers, but obviously there's more volume in your entire catalog than there is in one episode. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you can you can insert ads everywhere, then you're suddenly in a new uh, league, and maybe you can get those those ad dollars that weren't available you? to you. Yeah. You've done that trailblazer. <laughs> I didn't. I I'm sort of. I was the guy who was complaining about the problem, and then a lot of much smarter people figured out the solution. So I you had to I'm, start somewhere. Yeah, I'm happy to be involved in it because it's. Uh, I'm really excited about where it's going. But um, but yeah, the Sean Carr, who's the CEO of art 19 and uh, we have a crack team of engineers who have uh, built this uh, amazing platform. So, okay. well, I mean, props to them. you are, I think the definitive creative entrepreneur, <laughs> um, which is the emerging, uh, title of choice for artists. Uh, mm -hmm. and it seems like it, your career is still evolving mm -hmm. and you have your hand in different pots, but, uh, where do you want to be in five, 10 years? Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I think like what's worked for me uh, in the past has just been like doing what's fun. You know, that's where I've had the most success is like following what following my interests as much as possible and not being bogged down by um, like responsibilities like, oh, this is what I have to do. You know, I'm lucky now that I, I can I I make money doing something I love doing, which is never not funny. And that's like the bulk of my income comes from that show. And so I, I can kind of just follow my like interests and just sort of find things that are interesting and, and pursue it. I still do want to write. I mean, I still want to make movies. I, I sort of always thought I would get back there. Um, but in a weird way, I think what's happened is that <laughs> podcasting has very slowly incrementally become a more legitimate profession, mm -hmm. you know? So it's doesn't, when I started, it felt like this is an embarrassing thing to be doing. This is like cable access or public access. And now it's like, no, this is real. Like this is as real as any other medium. It's new. It's, it's actually because it's so young, there's a lot more growth and there's, it's a lot more exciting mm -hmm. than something that in some ways, my perspective on film is that it's kind of dying. Like it's, it, there's still great movies and I still like going to the movies, but we may be at a point where the system whereby millions and millions of dollars are spent to make millions and millions of dollars. It doesn't really like, if you looked at it, if someone came to it with no preconceived notion of like what, how things work, they'd be like, this is a terrible business. Like, why would you ever get into this? Like you basically have to, you have to find $250 million and then spend it and take two years or three years or four years so that you might make $250 million back. It's like, why don't you just keep the $250 yeah. million dummy? So like, I think, you know, there's still great stuff being made on a lot of different levels, but what's opening up now is like this whole sort of the, the, on the other end is like people just not worrying about that and just making stuff that they, you know, gravitating to what they, what they're passionate about, whether it's a, a 
film or something, a series on the web or a series for, for television or a podcast, you know, it, it doesn't, I think those labels maybe become less and less important for the audience. Like they don't discriminate against a certain mm-hmm. medium just because it's new or different or has a different distribution method. They're just like, no, I just like what I like. I mean, I love the idea that like you can record a podcast and release it the next day and it could provide as many laughs as a, a big budget movie that took a year and a half to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I really see the, the, the wheels falling off is like comedy films. <laughs> like it's so inefficient. It's like you put so much and I still love them. Movies can still be great and rewarding and enjoyable, but it kind of breaks my heart sometimes when I see a movie, I'm like, man, so much went into this and there were five laughs. Right. In it. It's like, you could have gotten that's five. Weird when you, when you quantify like that. Yeah. I know I that's mean, not the only metric. I mean, like, look, stories are important and like, you know, sto- story is a function, you know, it's a factor in, in film, the best comedies, are telling a great story and then they make you laugh. If it's just joke, 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 those are the ones that I feel like you just wasted tons of money because right. like you can put jokes anywhere. Like jokes can well, exist anywhere. We've even found with this podcast, I mean, we have special effects mm-hmm. that really, and I don't know if we were doing it in the Brent Forrester episode, but I heard some cool transitions. Yeah. Some, uh, yep. <laughs> some, some nice. I uh, mean, you can do things with audio. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's the next frontier is big budget audio. Like what's the hundred million dollar audio project? What does that sound ideas. like? <laughs> yeah. If you're developing anything, I'm in if you want me. <laughs> All right. Um, I want to see, I want to hear it. I, I shouldn't say see it. I want to hear it. I'll play some stuff for you when we're done. Oh, cool. So, I mean, to young comedians or artists or, you know, in the realm of podcasting, I mean, it seems like the entry point is, is really tough to get seen now. Would you have any advice to any person that's thinking about creating a podcast to mm-hmm. stand out, to uh, transcend um, a thousand million podcasts? And, and <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think is the most important thing is to be different. You know, I think that's another thing that I love about podcasts is that um, you're actually better off being different. Whereas I think be- because of the system and the infrastructure in place in other media, you actually have to be a little bit more similar to what is already exists to get, you know, to get through the gatekeepers. You, you have to be able to say, this is the office in outer space or right. whatever, That's but like, idea, <laughs> write that down, okay. write that down trademark. Wait, Star Trek. Copyright. <laughs> um, uh, oh yeah, it's kind of Galaxy Quest actually. <laughs> like I already did it, but um, but yeah, like in podcasting, you actually are better off being unique. You know, like I like my favorite example is like Welcome to Night Vale, which is mm-hmm. like so weird and different, and it found an audience and exploded and took off. Um, and now everybody's trying to do like the weird scripted like thing, mm-hmm. or there's like tons of shows that are like um, because of Serial, there's tons of like now true crime podcasts. Right. Um, and actually some of them are successful. So maybe I'm full of shit. Maybe it has, maybe it's good to imitate, but, um, but I think like, you know, you're better off being like the first one to do. There's so much you can do. Like there's really no rules. So like just figure out something cool and different, uh, a different application, um, for this thing that has no boundaries really. And, and I think that'll be good. I also, you know, uh, I don't really feel hundred percent qualified to speak on that subject because I just was very, very lucky that I, teamed up with a very talented comedian and so like he had a built-in audience his talent is again a magnet for people who appreciate Mm -hmm. comedy uh so what the hell do i know like i mean i guess my only practical advice would be like find a genius and work with them (laughs) you know like that's sort of the main thing that you can do well Uh, i mean i think your career timing is you know everything for anyone i guess but especially you know as we talked about you know in that specific time of mid 2000s Mm -hmm. 
and what was happening and 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 just doing what you loved and it's it's created yeah. a, a beautiful career for you well i also felt like at my age i'm 41 um I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s when the internet was starting you know and i kind of felt like i spend a lot of time on the internet like when i was younger i spent so much time on the internet i was like if i can't if if i can't figure out a way to make a living on the internet, given my background, given that I know how this stuff works, like I'm not a computer programmer, but I know enough. It's like uh, shame on me. <laughs> like, you know, like I was in the right place. Yeah. You know, like people talk about right place, right time. It's like anybody who was alive <laughs> at the beginning of the internet and like old enough to know how to use a computer, you kind of, it's your own fault if you didn't figure out a way to, cause there was, it was wide, wide open. I mean, that's just like, just my like GeoCD site is still making money. From yeah, see, it's, I mean, that's right. Like you'd have to, <laughs> you have to like go out of your way to not make money on this stuff. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I, I really felt strongly like I'm going to be kicking myself if I don't find a way to turn this into something because I'm right here. It's like, it's, it's, I see it's happening. I mean, like you could see, like in some ways you could look at a special thing and be like, well, that was before Facebook and then Facebook started. It's like, well, couldn't that was an online community where people are just talking like couldn't have that become Facebook. And it's like, oh, you idiot. That's what you should have done. You should have built Facebook. That's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. <laughs> but at the time when Facebook first came around or even when MySpace came around, it was just like, oh, that's just like a shitty message board. Like it's not even better. It's worse than a message board. So like, why couldn't I start something like that? Um, uh, the truth is. I don't really have any interest or passion for making something like that, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, but basically when you look around you and figure out like what needs to be done here, like, you know, what's happening already, what's, where's the, where's everything going? If you can kind of like just ride that wave a little bit, I think that's all I did in my, in a very, very, very small way, like just jumped on what everybody else was doing and sort of tried to follow the, the, the wave. Well, congratulations. Thanks, man. Thanks for joining. To you us. too. Uh, this is awesome. I mean, first of all, this this place is this is. I think I said it before. Like, it's a beautiful place to to record. But congratulations on everything with the improv. Right. It's really Thanks. it's awesome. You found you found your place. Yeah, yeah, and still growing and learning and yeah, because I want to make movies too. Yeah, I mean, I think we all do. Like, we all grew yeah. up with that. It's like that's if that's what shaped you as a person, you kind of want to. Um, you want to shape somebody else, right? So turn the tables on these suckers. <laughs> uh, I love it. Well, um, where can people find uh, all these things? Um, Never Not Funny is on Earwolf, and it's on iTunes, and um, it's on. You can find it. We're on Twitter at Never Not Funny, on Facebook at Facebook.com/slash Never Not Funny. I'm at Matt Belknap on Twitter. <laughs> really, not a ton of reasons to follow that i mean hey I, come on very very occasionally we'll post let them something. find that out on their own <laughs> right it's mostly show related honestly at this point so if you're into never not funny then you might get something out of it but um and then a special thing the record label is ast records astrecords.com you can see all of the stuff we've made and we continue to make very excited to be putting we're very close to putting out an andy kindler album oh, amazing uh one of my favorites and it's been a long time coming so that'll be great when that comes out um hopefully this fall and um, and the message board technically is still active. If you want to post on a message board that was active ten years ago, you can go to AS, uh, a special thing dot com and uh, uh, get 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 a be a part of the next generation. Why not? <laughs> awesome. Well, Matt, thank you again. Thank and, you. Um, work on your craft endlessly. Be a professional. Be undeniable, and be cool as fuck always.
For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com and at jamieflam on Twitter. A very special thanks to the Sideshow Network, The Hollywood Improv, Andrew Steven, Sean Merrick, Roddy Swearingen, and producer Buddy Peace for the awesome music at the top and end of this episode. And be sure to check out hollywood.improv.com for updates on great new shows coming up in the main room and the lab.